Good morning. Please turn with me this morning to the book of Jude. The book of Jude is interesting because the author tells us he was planning to write on one thing, but something pressing came up and he changed his mind and wrote on another topic instead. Well, we just finished 1 Thessalonians and my original plan was to go right into 2 Thessalonians, but something more pressing has come up. I'm going to take a detour for one Sunday and talk about Jude instead of 2 Thessalonians. We'll get back to 2 Thessalonians next week. I once read that Jude is the most neglected book in the New Testament, and I kind of believe it. I'm 68 years old, and I've been going to church pretty much all my life, and I don't ever recall hearing a sermon on the book of Jude. I don't know why that might be, but I have a couple of guesses. First, Jude contains a couple of quotations from non-biblical books called pseudepigraphal books by scholars. And it could be that some pastors are not really sure what to do with that. The first quote in, is in Jude 9, which mentions Michael contending with the devil over the body of Moses. This comes from a book called The Assumption of Moses, written sometime after the Old Testament and before the birth of Jesus. The second quote is from Jude is in Jude 14 and 15 from a book called First Enoch, written in the first centuries BC or AD. Chapter 1 of First Enoch is a vision about events in the distant future. First Enoch 1:9 talks about the coming of God, saying, Behold, he will arrive with ten million of his holy ones, in order to execute judgment upon all. He will destroy the wicked ones and censure all flesh on account of everything that they've done, that which the sinners and the wicked ones have committed against him. Jude paraphrases this passage in Jude 14 and 15, which leads to the question, are these two non-biblical books inspired? And should they be in the Bible too, since Jude quotes from them? The answer is no. Just because Jude quotes from 1 Enoch or the Assumption of Moses, does not mean they were inspired by God. The Old Testament often cites non-biblical books, and Paul even quotes from Greco-Roman writers like Menander or Epimenides. The doctrine of inspiration doesn't mean everything in the Bible was dictated by God. It just means that the Holy Spirit was guiding the authors so that what they wrote is true, even if they quoted other sources. The second reason some pastors may have avoided Jude in the past is that until relatively recently, the message of Jude just didn't seem very relevant to America. How quickly things change. A third reason some pastors may avoid Jude, especially today, is that Jude presents a flaming attack against the ungodly and warns of their eternal condemnation in hell. This is a message that's not very welcome in many of today's churches that just want to talk about God's love. Nevertheless, we're going to go where the politically correct fear to tread this morning. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, once again, we ask that you would guide our hearts and our thoughts as we look into this book. Give discernment as everyone considers whether the application I'm about to make is valid. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. The problem that Jude addresses is that there are ungodly people who have crept into some of the churches 
and are perverting the grace of God into an excuse for promoting immorality. Let's read the introduction in verses 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Jude's full name in the Greek New Testament is actually Judas. I think the translation shortened it to Jude so people didn't confuse him with Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. Judas was a pretty common name in Israel. According to Mark 6.3, Jude, or Judas, was one of the half-brothers of Jesus. And that is the Jude who wrote this letter. Now, have you ever planned to do something and ended up doing something else instead? Maybe you planned to get some work done around the house when something else came up and derailed your plans. That's kind of what happened with Jude. He wanted to write to his church about the doctrine of salvation. But something pressing came up. Something so pressing, he changed his mind and decided to address this pressing issue instead. We see this in verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. You see, Jude became aware that the Christian faith was under attack, and he was writing to urge his readers to defend and contend for that faith. In the modern world, we call such a defense of the faith apologetics. There was once a very famous preacher in England named Charles Spurgeon. I'm sure you've heard of him. Someone once asked him about defending the Bible, and he said, Defend the Bible? I would as soon defend a lion. Unchain it. It will defend itself. I greatly admire Charles Spurgeon, but in this case, he was just plain wrong. Peter tells us that we should always be prepared to give a defense, apologetics, for the hope that's within us. And although Jude wanted to write about something as important as salvation, something so crucial has come up, he thought he needed to write urging believers to contend for the faith instead. So what is Jude defending against? What could possibly be so important that he would put his discussion of salvation on the back burner? Verse 4. For certain individuals, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. There were apparently people infiltrating the churches, teaching that since we are saved by grace and not by works, we can boldly live ungodly and immoral lifestyles, and that's okay with God. The idea seems to be that, that God is so loving and so gracious and tolerant that he understands us. He's okay with our sinful behavior. In fact, we learn from Paul's letter to the Romans that people like these were actually teaching that God could be glorified by our ungodly lifestyles because that just shows how loving and gracious God really is. Paul says their condemnation is just. The issue Jude is addressing is not just the immorality of some who live together outside of marriage or who engage in adultery or who practice homosexuality. The issue is those who claim to be Christians 
coming into the churches and teaching that God in his grace and love approves of such immorality. They actively promote such immorality among God's people in the churches. So from verses 5 to 16, Jude compares those who pervert the grace of our God into a license or excuse for immorality with examples, mostly from the Old Testament. In verse 5, Jude writes, Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 5 leads me to believe that the ungodly infiltrators are people who claim to be Christians, but have rebelled against God in their behavior. And Jude is warning that unless they repent, they will face God's destruction, just like God destroyed those who came out of Egypt in the Exodus, but did not ultimately believe. In verse 6, Jude writes about the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now Jude may be talking about angels who fell along with Satan, or maybe about the fallen angels who rebelled against God in Genesis 6. But like these fallen angels, Jude is arguing that the infiltrators who are promoting immorality in the name of grace will be eternally condemned. Verse 7 says, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. It's important to note that we're not just talking about weak or carnal Christians here. In other words, these are not Christians who, through weakness of the flesh, have fallen into sin. These are people who use God's grace as an excuse to justify and even promote their immoral and ungodly behavior. Like those of Sodom and Gomorrah, Jude says they gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And Jude clearly regards these infiltrators as unsaved. Verse 8 goes on to say, in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. When Jude talks about polluting their bodies, he may have in mind things like the taking of mind-altering drugs and pagan sexual worship rituals. The infiltrators have brought their pagan culture, have bought into their pagan culture, and are bringing it into the churches. When Jude says these people reject authority, I think he's talking about rejecting the authority of Jesus and the apostles. The examples Jude gives in verse 11 of the way of Cain, of Balaam's error, Korah's rebellion, are ultimately all examples of rebellion against God. Jude is saying that the ungodly, immoral behavior of those he's writing about constitutes rebellion against God himself. But instead of following apostolic authority, Jude 8 says they are relying on their dreams or their personal revelations. Now, back up in verse 3, Jude wrote about the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. I think Jude means that the doctrinal content of this faith 
was once for all time delivered to us by Jesus and the apostles and is not to be added to, subtracted from, modified, supplemented, or superseded by our own personal visions, dreams, revelations, feelings, or imaginations. In other words, if you ever think God is telling you that it's okay to do something that God's word clearly forbids, you can be quite sure it's not God who's speaking. So in a nutshell, the problem is that some people have crept into the churches who are openly indulging in and promoting sexual immorality and what Jude calls perversion and unnatural desires, defying apostolic authority and justifying their sin on the basis of God's grace and their own personal revelations. But that's the first century. This is the 21st century. What does this have to do with us? It wasn't all that many years ago when the book of Jude didn't seem very relevant to to Americans because there were no churches that had abandoned themselves to immorality. How quickly things change. Sadly, whole denominations today openly and actively support unmarried couples living together, as well as gay and bisexual sex and the transgender movement. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, the Alliance of Baptists, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the United Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church USA, the United Church of Christ, and numerous others are all proudly gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender-supporting churches. Some even ordain gay, lesbian, or transgender pastors. I recently saw a clip about one pastor who invited a heavily made-up transgender guy to interact with kids in their church's children's message. These churches are doing exactly what Jude condemns. They pervert the grace of our God into a license or excuse for immorality. Now, I want to make clear that this is not a rant against gay or transgender people. Some gay people are just as disgusted with LGBTQ activism as we are. Nothing I say this morning should be seen as an excuse to mistreat gay or transgenders. They are people for whom Christ died every bit as much as he died for sinners like me or you. We will never win them to Christ by mistreating him. They deserve our love and our compassion. Anyway, Jude interrupted what he was intending to write so he could write about something more pressing. And I'm interrupting my series on Thessalonians to discuss something more pressing. Unlike Jude, however, I'm not primarily concerned this morning about churches that pervert the grace of God into immorality. I'm concerned about a government that has perverted our freedom into an excuse to push immorality and perversion on our children. Now, pastors are understandably reluctant to get involved in politics. Some of that reluctance may be because in the past, politics was largely about guns versus butter. In other words, the relative importance of national security versus social programs. And there were sincere, godly Christians on both sides of that issue. But pastors and Christians need to understand that those days are long gone. There are many political issues that pastors should stay out of. But when political crosses over into the biblical territory, those issues are now on my turf. 
and pastors have a responsibility and obligation to address them, political or not. So a couple of weeks ago, I posted on Facebook that modern politics is now something like things like a movement to undermine religious freedom by overturning the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Legal attempts to force Christians to do things they believe will be sinful or face enormous fines and lose their businesses or jobs. The vigorous promotion of the murder of unborn children insisting that Christian medical professors take part or lose their jobs. Organized attempts in school to get children to question their gender. Allowing biological males in girls' sports, restrooms, and locker rooms. The grooming of children through sexually provocative trans dances in libraries, schools, and other venues. The attempt to begin legitimizing pedophilia by calling them minor attracted persons. Providing puberty blockers to children, in some cases without parents' knowledge. The sexual mutilation of children in the name of gender affirmation. This is not politics as usual. This is pure evil. It's wicked, even satanic. And folks, all of this promotion of evil is coming exclusively from the Democrat Party. In fact, advancing the LGBTQ agenda is actually part of the official Democrat Party platform. Now, in the past, there were many pro-life Christians who voted Democrat anyway, even though that party aggressively pushes abortion. These pro-life Christians justified their vote first because they thought the Democrat Party was the party of the poor, and Jesus was concerned about the poor. And second, they didn't want to be one-issue voters. But this is no longer a one-issue matter. It concerns many biblically-related moral issues. Second, if you still think that party is the party of the poor, Ask yourselves why gigantic corporations made out like bandits during the COVID shutdowns while small stores were forced out of business in droves. Ask yourselves, under the current economic policies, who's being hurt more? Big Pharma or the farmers? The billionaires or the middle class? The party is no longer the party of the poor, if they ever were. And this is no longer a one-issue issue. Now, you may think that your Democrat candidate is different. Maybe someone like Tulsi Gabbard. But the party in the majority gets to set the agendas and block the opposition. So even if your favorite Democrat candidate is personally opposed to some of the evil I listed above, their presence in Congress contributes toward a majority. So, for example... Even if there was a Democrat senator who opposed all of this evil, it wouldn't matter because their presence in Congress gave Democrats the majority in the Senate and allowed their party to set the agendas and block the opposition. As you know, the midterm elections are this Tuesday, which is why I took one week break from Thessalonians. 
Both Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 teach that we should be good citizens. Part of being a good citizen in America is voting. So I'm urging you as your pastor to get out and vote. I'm not suggesting that Republicans are all good. They're certainly not. Or that elections will solve American problems. Far from it. Only a national repentance and great awakening will solve our problems. But I am suggesting that if you vote for a Democrat in this election, you are adding your support for a party that not only promotes the behaviors that Jude condemns, but also behaviors for which God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and the Canaanites. Please vote wisely. Let me close with the doxology from Jude 24 and 25. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.